Welcome to Going Viral, a podcast all about the viruses that spread infectious disease. I'm Mark Honigsbaum, a medical historian specialising in pandemics. And in this episode, we'll be revisiting a subject close to our hearts, the 1918 Spanish flu. And we'll be asking, what can we learn from that pandemic of 100 years ago? Later, I'll be reunited with my fellow disease detective, Dr. Hannah Mortley. But my first guest is the journalist and writer, Wendy Moore. Wendy is the author of five non-fiction books, including The Knife Man, about the father of modern surgery, John Hunter. But in her latest book, Endel Street, released as No Man's Land in the United States, Wendy tells the story of two pioneering First World War female medics and suffragettes, Flora Murray and Louisa Garrett Anderson. Because they were women, Murray and Anderson were banned from serving in the British Army Medical Corps. Instead, in 1915, they took over a derelict Victorian workhouse near Covent Garden and turned it into a hospital for treating wounded soldiers. And, in 1918, casualties of the Spanish flu. Endel Street was unique. It was the only military hospital in the First World War that was run entirely by women. So it was opened in May 1915. Um, It was run by Flora Murray and Louisa Garrett Anderson. And um, up until the First World War, women doctors were basically not allowed to treat men. They were confined to treating women and children only. But a lot of women doctors saw the First World War as a chance to prove themselves. And so when war broke out, Flora Murray and Louisa Garrett Anderson, initially they took a small team of female doctors and nurses to Paris and they ran a hospital there under the auspices of the French Red Cross. And army um, officials who came to look round, initially very hostile, saw what they were doing and toured the hospital and were so impressed that they gave them official sanction for a second hospital, which opened in near Beloit. And then in May 1915, they were invited to open a hospital in central London. So it was a major military hospital, more than 500 beds. And all of the staff, apart from a handful of male orderlies, were female. Should we fast forward to your chapter 10, Full of Ghosts, which is all about the Spanish flu? Tell us a little bit about how you research this and, you know, how you set about writing this and trying to convey to people who weren't there what it was like in that dreadful month of November 1918. It was an incredibly poignant time and a really quite you know harrowing story to write in lots of ways, because just at the very moment when they were celebrating the end of the war and um, patients were allowed to come out onto the streets and the staff were flooding out, um, joining in the celebrations. That was the very moment when it was the peak of the Spanish flu. The very same time, there were uh, bells ringing for the for the armistice. There were also bells tolling for funerals. So really, I think the, the staff at Endless Street had been exhausted by the war, by four years of running the hospital. Lots of staff had um, been there from the beginning and were, you know, worn out and um, you know suffered um, ill health already so a lot of them were quite vulnerable um, and I think it was incredibly depressing for them to then find that the war was finished but they were now the hospital was inundated with lots more patients and they were busier than ever so in particular for Flora Murray she was one of the two founders of the hospital but she was really the main physician she was running the hospital she was effectively doctor-in-chief It was a very distressing time and people talk about her being incredibly formidable and then she almost broke down with the with the kind of extra burden of coping with the flu 
with the the pressure on the beds, they have to set up extra beds, they have to recruit extra staff, but also the way that the flu affected staff too, because very many of the staff became ill and Mm. um, quite a few of them died. The first wave of the flu arrived in June 1918, and at that point, Vera Scantlebury, who was one of the Australian surgeons, she wrote home to say, It is a most peculiar disease, not typhoid, not influenza, not meningitis, but symptoms of each. Tragedies have been happening here. The flu, of course, has run through the hospital, and one of the orderlies died from pneumonia, and another has just turned the corner. And then, of course, the flu returned in February uh, 1919. And at that point, Nina Last, who was uh, one of the orderlies who worked at the hospital, she wrote, It was more like a plague than influenza. Men died like flies, in the street one moment, then three days later, dead. Pretty young girls, quite well one day, were dead in three days' time from streptococcal germs or influenza. They were war-worn girls and fell an easy prey. You describe this volunteer nurse, Daisy Waddling. Daisy Waddling had enrolled in the WAX in March 1917 and worked as a driver with the Army Service Corps in southern England. At the beginning of November, while driving from her quarters in Croydon to Army Barracks at Chatham in Kent, she caught a cold. As she grew rapidly ill with what doctors realised was plainly influenza, Daisy, who was 32, was dispatched by ambulance to Endell Street with a high fever. At first, she seemed to rally. Then suddenly, on the 5th of November, pneumonia set in and the staff nursing her immediately telegraphed her family. Her parents, John and Alice, arrived from their home in Dorking, Surrey, to find Daisy quite sensible and cheerful, and they left early that evening, reassured. Within hours, she had taken a turn for the worse, a typical response to the flu, and the staff wired the waddlings to return. Rushing back to her bedside, John and Alice found their daughter unconscious. She died at midnight. Daisy Waddling was buried six days later on Armistice Day with a full military funeral which trailed through Dorking. Her coffin was covered with a Union Jack on top of which her khaki cap was proudly placed and her male army colleagues acted as bearers followed by a cortege of women drivers from her company. The last post was sounded beside Daisy's grave even as church bells were pealing to celebrate peace. When I was researching my book, which was a social history of the influenza pandemic, Living with Enza, I came across very similar accounts in letters written by survivors. Typically, they were written by people who had been children at the time, recalling the impact, because it was children were spared by and large, and it was elder brothers or sisters or often parents who died. And a lot of these, these older people, looking back, talked exactly about that, about everyone was out celebrating. You could hear the peals and the guns going off and everyone, you know, having a party. But their overwhelming memory was one of sadness, the kind of trauma. And often they could describe horse-drawn carriages with the black hearse and the coffin on the back, often draped in military colours. So it's kind of very poignant, that juxtaposition. 
in total, at least four staff from Endor Street died mm. of the, the yeah. flu. You talk about how Flora Murray insisted that the women were meticulous about hygiene. You talk about how she set up a disinfecting hut in the courtyard. And she also ensured that her nurses were segregated in the special ward, as you mentioned. But in addition, she placed screens around their beds or some of their beds. This is all very far-sighted. I mean, the NHS today is struggling to do that in some places. Yes, indeed. I mean, I don't know how useful the disinfecting hut was, but they had this hut in the courtyard where the staff were sent twice a day to breathe in steamy vapour. I don't know if that helped or not. They did segregate patients, but they also had screens around the beds. And they were encouraged to wear face masks too. And there's an article that I came across just by chance in the Times in February in 1919, where they said that the Times, in fact, had been urging people to wear face masks. And they were saying that the War Office had now asked all its hospitals to um, introduce face masks. And it said that that had been trialled in particular at a few hospitals and Endra Street was one of them. This is so interesting because here we are today in 2020 and we're still having this debate about face masks 100 years later. So I thought that when I researched that book, I was pretty confident I dug up practically every source and diary I could find. I have to say, I have to admit, I never came across this hospital. I guess I was looking in the typical medical sources in my defence, but I didn't come across it catalogued anywhere. How did you find out about it? It wasn't this case of like so much in medical history. It wasn't this kind of march of progress. Things went back after the war to how they'd been before. So women doctors were forced back into treating only women and children again. And a lot of them had to do that or they went abroad or they retired. So there's not this continuum of understanding of what happened afterwards. But what about in terms of medical journals and the medical profession themselves? Is there much mention of Endell Street if you go, I don't know, to the medical record? It was heralded in the newspapers at the time as being this you know, great triumph and a great kind of emblem of that sort of blighty spirit that was getting mm. people through the war. So it was very much um, held up as an example of people pulling together and it mm. did get a lot of coverage at the time. But yeah, it has kind of you know, become obscured since then, really. And you asked how I came across it and I was in the Welcome Library of the History of Medicine and um, about 10 years ago, I think it was, they had um, a painting on the wall and I walked in and saw this painting it was the fabulous painting by Francis Dodd which shows the Endor Street operating theatre with only women in it and that is you know rare today but um, when I discovered it was a hospital in the First World War and it was staffed entirely by women, that's what you know, hooked me into wanting to write the story about it. So all us male historians walking into the Welcome Library probably blindly passed by that picture and didn't really notice how remarkable it was, that it was but you did. I think we should actually tell um, our listeners a bit more about the two central characters in your book because they weren't only pioneering surgeons, but they were suffering. Jets. So tell us a little bit about their struggle to become accepted by the medical profession and how that kind of radicalised them. So Flora Murray and Louisa Garrett Anderson were both qualified doctors. They both trained at the London School of Medicine for Women. It was actually Louisa Garrett Anderson's mother, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, who'd become the first woman trained in Britain to become a doctor in 1865. So women had 
broken that barrier. They managed to enter medicine. They could work as doctors. But um, even at the beginning of the First World War, women doctors were still largely prevented from working in mainstream hospitals. It was taboo to treat men. So they had huge difficulty in getting posts. They'd both worked treating women and children. So Louisa Garrett Anderson was a surgeon. Uh, she uh, worked at the new hospital for women, which her mother had set up. It later became the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Hospital. And Flora Murray was a physician and um, anaesthetist. And together they, they ran a um, small hospital that treated children in a poor part of London. And they were also um, a couple. They, were, they lived together as, um, effectively as a married couple. They were absolutely devoted to each other. And I think proving that women doctors were as good as men was a kind of act of love for them too. And they both become suffragettes. Louisa had joined Mrs Pankhurst's WSPU because she'd become impatient with the lack of action. So she'd actually ended up in Holloway Prison for six weeks for smashing a window. And Flora, in a way, had taken even more um, dangerous action because she was Mrs. Pankhurst's doctor and she'd treated um, lots of suffragettes who'd been force fed in hospital for the ill effects of being force fed. And I think she'd also, there's lots of evidence that she was probably complicit in helping some of them to evade uh, capture by the, the police. So, so they were both really putting their professional reputations on the line. Could you just very quickly describe for our listeners that thing about force feeding? Because it's actually quite, it's, it's shocking when you, you realise what the prison authorities with doctors, you know, at their side did to women suffragettes. Well, yes, indeed. I mean, um, um, the suffragettes had um, gone on um, hunger strikes in the in prisons. Um, they were basically um, demanding similar rights to political prisoners, which they were being denied. So they were on hunger strike, and the government was really getting concerned that, um, that uh, one of them would die and they would be held as a martyr. So, in order to prevent that, they got prison doctors to force feed um, suffragettes who were in danger of getting ill. And it was it was very brutal. The women were held down by one or two other prison officers. They had uh, plastic tubes forced down their throats and they were force fed. And often they would do, it was done several times a day uh, for several days running. Some of them um, were quite you know badly bruised and hurt during that. And uh, in fact, Flora Murray is one of the doctors who really campaigned against that and uh, published um, a leaflet to show how the effects of it damaged people. She said it was dangerous and immoral. Um, so she really stood out on that when a, a lot of mainly male doctors were defending it or at least not standing up against it. She actually organised a petition against forced feeding. When Flora and Louisa arrived at the workhouse in Andrew Street, which was, was going to be converted into the hospital, the colonel who was looking after the conversion work, his response to them was, good God, women, and he stomped off. Um, mm. And that was very much the kind of response they had initially mm. from a, a lot of um, the army top brass. Yeah. Mm. But, but I suppose despite all those prejudices, um, just as during World War One, because all the men were at the front, or most of them at the front, this was an opportunity for women to work in munitions factories and, and take on other roles that were traditionally the preserve of men. The same was true of the medical, medical corps of the army and, and, 
on the home front, there was a, there was a, just a huge gap, presumably, for anyone with medical expertise, even if they were women. Yeah, it, it was an opportunity for women doctors, and they seized that. But at the same time, it was um, convenient for the British Army and the government because they they knew that they, you know, by 1915, they needed more doctors. There was a shortage of male doctors in the army, shortage of male doctors at home, particularly. So hospitals were struggling to uh, continue open. Medical schools were at risk of closing. So medical schools started um, um, enrolling women as well for the first time. And um, uh, hospitals, lots of hospitals only stayed open because of women doctors. So the British Army you know, did this kind of complete uh, vault fast um, almost overnight. So in 1915, they gave Endor Street the go ahead. And they also started um, asking for other women doctors to to work um, in the army. You obviously do very deep research. I take it you've had to track down diaries and other documents that weren't easy to find. Is that right? Yes. I mean, so, um, you know, there is this fantastic archive at the Women's Library of the LFC, um, which includes um, the Garrett Anderson papers. So Louisa Garrett Anderson left letters. Flora Murray she was very uh, shrewd and she created a, a scrapbook of photographs and cuttings. So that was a, an amazing source. That was probably the, the best source. Various um, staff wrote letters and, and kept diaries. So they also existed. Nina, Nina Last was one of the orderlies um, who um, wrote a diary at the time. But at the same time, I yeah, tracked down uh, lots of families of women who'd worked at the hospital. So families whose grandmothers and great aunts um, had worked at Endor Street and also families whose um, grandfathers had been treated there. And some of them then came back to me with pictures and letters as well. So, um, so it became this kind of group biography, I think, really. What strikes me is the sort of deep research you've been doing is very similar to what Roy Porter once called for years ago, where he said, we need like so more social histories of medicine, we need more patients' histories. And he talked about the patient's view. But that could apply to anyone whose um, involvement or whose histories were being obscured by the dominant, in this case, male accounts of the profession. So do you see yourself as a social historian or would you say you're primarily a storyteller? I suppose it's a bit of both. I mean, I, I suppose I look initially for the story. That's what um, interests me. It's the kind of unknown stories that I want to uncover. And I suppose often that is women's stories. I've been particularly interested in stories about women who have been forgotten from history. Of course, these days, there's no excuse for obscuring women's contributions to history. And on that note, who could forget my colleague Hannah Maudsley, or Dr Maudsley, as she is now known, you had only just delivered and defended your thesis when, within a month, COVID emerged. I mean, did that not strike you as uncanny? Absolutely. A little bit too close to home in some ways. The final paragraph of my thesis conclusion basically talks about, should this happen again, the memory of the Spanish flu will be revisited in search of answers. When you wrote that line, hand on heart, did you actually think there could be a pandemic comparable to 1918? I think there's a difference between knowing something to be true and seeing it happen. I was fully convinced of its of it being a possibility, but to see it actually happen has been quite something. And my thesis 
sort of began with a collection of first-hand accounts of the Spanish flu uh, gathered in the 1970s. And my experiencing a pandemic on this sort of scale has certainly given me a whole new understanding of what they experienced at that time. One of the challenges for any historian is being able to put themselves imaginatively in the place of people, you know, living in a different age or time. So how has the experience of living through COVID changed or, or um, affected the way you think about 1918? The eyewitness accounts that I used were collected um, more than 50 years after the event. And I think some elements of the strain of isolation and the way that people spent their time during isolation is, is missing from the accounts. And the strain of people not being able to see their families, the strain of people being seen to do the right thing and or not doing the right thing. The interpersonal elements of operating in a pandemic situation certainly has come to life uh, for me more recently. So, I mean, one of the first things we saw when people realised that actually COVID wasn't just a problem for China, but could be a problem for the whole world. For some reason, everyone started buying lots of toilet roll, not antibiotics or a vaccine. Do you think people were thinking those terms in 1918? Was, was there panic that people weren't recording in their letters? Or what do you think? In the letters I looked at, I can't recall instances of people hoarding particularly much. Obviously, it was a different context at the time. You've got the Spanish flu happening in the final year of the First World War. You've got people used to, you know, more, more limited food. So... I think that the context is slightly different. I think nowadays when we've got such ready access to as much food as we like, um, you know, in the majority of cases, it was almost a kind of a coping mechanism of how can we feel more prepared? How can we feel more in control? During this pandemic, we have been following it in real time, both on conventional media and on social media. What difference do you think that would have made, the fact that that wasn't possible in 1918? I think it's capturing the uncertainty of it all a lot better. The picture is changing every day, sometimes more than once a day. And the uh, accounts during the Spanish flu that we are lucky enough to have are quite often retrospective ones. We have some that are at the time, they're sort of diary accounts, but we know that some of those were sort of edited and amended and, and sort of clarified after the event. So I think we're getting much more of a raw response and reaction as we go through this pandemic. And it's interesting, it will be interesting for future historians to be able to look back and see how the, the consciousness of the pandemic progressed throughout the crisis, rather than just having more of a, a reflective, retrospective approach that we, we currently have for the Spanish flu. So a question I get a lot from journalists is, you know, they want to know all about 1918 now. A couple of years ago, when we were making the first series of Going Viral, it was quite hard to actually persuade people to fund it and that it might be interesting because there's a big centenary coming up. And even during the centenary, there wasn't a huge amount of interest, not like now, where the first question everyone's asking is, 1918, I want to know all about it suddenly. Because COVID is having such massive effects and it's dominating the news, everyone assumes that 1918 must have been like that. And I say, well, no, it wasn't like that. And I think a big part of that is when you strip away the media. There were lots of people in 1918 who were kind of unaware, really, that the pandemic was going on. Do you think that's fair? Do you see that reflected in any of your collection? 
There is certainly variety around the world. The Spanish flu was was a global pandemic and you've got different responses in different countries. And I think there was definitely a difference in the countries that were involved in the First World War, um, who were much more controlling of uh, the bad news stories in the media. And then you've also got countries who did a much better job of actually tackling the virus. You're seeing that again today, some variety in how countries are approaching it. In 1918, you've got places like Australia enacting fairly good quarantines that managed to limit numbers of deaths there. And you've got other countries who suffer a lot more like New Zealand in terms of the death toll. So I think you've got that variety of approaches. And I think the engagement and awareness of the public with that does vary in sort of reflecting ways to that. Do you see similarities with 1918? And if so, what are they? And do you see any differences? I definitely see some huge similarities. I think the fact that coronavirus or coronaviruses is is something that we live with generally. The common cold is a coronavirus. And some of the symptoms are easily confusable with colds and flus. And I think you saw that in 1918 as well. It was hard for people to know where normal seasonal flu began and ended and when, when, when the pandemic began and ended. So you've got that kind of ambiguity over what counts as the pandemic and what is just sort of normal. I think also the social interventions that um, had the biggest impact during Spanish flu, so isolating, quarantine, effective nursing, we're seeing again are the the key things that are being used to tackle coronavirus now. The role that the NHS and other um, health services are playing is is obviously hugely important. And, you know, the lockdowns in various countries, the earlier the lockdown, it seems to have had huge impacts on the you know, death tolls as they stand at the moment. It puts me in mind of, a, of the interview that we did with Jeremy Farrow of the Wellcome Trust last series, where he was basically talking about if a pandemic happened on the, se- on the scale of the Spanish flu again, that we would still be relying on those social interventions that, that we were in 1918. And I think you're absolutely seeing that play out in today's pandemic. That idea of sort of where blame can lie is is another place where I've seen some parallels with the Spanish flu. Did the virus emerge from a Wuhan lab and that sort of thing? Back in the Spanish flu, there were there were conspiracy theories that it was some sort of biological warfare from the Germans, that it was uh, infecting bacon um, and giving it to unsuspecting populace, uh, populaces. And, um, you know, that sort of there was one account where you know they thought it was it was put in the bread and you know unsuspecting people would eat that or you've got the the famous thing about the aspirin being blamed for spreading spanish flu because the german company bayer had until recently at that point uh, had the the patent for for aspirin all the conspiracy theories around that and i think it's really interesting as people struggle to understand something that's very much an emerging picture at the moment all these theories come out and uh, probably the the role of the internet and and social media have blown that uh, even bigger uh, in this pandemic than spanish flu it seems to me that the british in particular um, and the british doctors and physicians have always had this idea that they haven't really ever trusted the idea of influenza to begin with. They, you know, influenza was always uh, viewed as a suspicious Italian term for the common cold or Qatar. If you look at the history of public health in that period, 
continuing through to the present day, you could argue, influenza was sort of one of those diseases you just can't control. That that once you're, you realise you have an outbreak or an epidemic, it's already too late because it's very widespread. And I wonder if we can understand some of the complacent responses from politicians today through that sort of historical frame that people thought, oh, coronavirus is like influenza. And therefore, they just surrendered and held up their hands and said, we, we can't do anything. I think you're right. I think there is a, a level of, of complacency and, and uh, inevitability in some of the discourse we've heard from, from authorities. I think the coronavirus is particularly interesting because it seems to be quite a sneaky player in, in the way that it's, it can be asymptomatic and can take a while to spread before actually producing symptoms if it is going to. And I think that, that can contribute to that sort of sense of inevitability of, you know, we can't control it, so, so why even try sort of thing. It seems to me that one reason why the 1918 pandemic was categorised as the forgotten pandemic is it didn't result in many artistic production. Very few novelists wrote about it afterwards. There are very few artists who are inspired to great works of art. And I think that makes it very different from, say, The Black Death, where we had all sorts of cultural productions such as the phenomenon of memento mori, uh, members of the aristocracy commissioning portraits of themselves with skulls and um, other references to the underworld, the afterlife. Do you think COVID will be different in that respect? Certainly people I know and and members of staff of, of mine that are furloughed are certainly getting in touch with their creative side. It's interesting that you say about the, um, the lack of uh, creative manifestation of the Spanish flu memory. I, I agree that um, it didn't appear in that way in sort of arts and culture. I think for me, the Spanish flu made itself felt most legacy wise in, in sort of the public health revolutions that happened in many places around the world. So it's a different kind of memorialization, if you like. Uh, in terms of arts and culture, I think the centenary a year or two ago was actually more powerful in inspiring uh, creative reflections on the Spanish flu than, than the years immediately after it, including plays and, and theatre and dance pieces, music. Um, and I think that modern technology, particularly the internet, facilitated some of that. And I think uh, coronavirus at the moment is going to be able to take advantage of both people's time during during mm. furlough, if, if they're currently furloughed, and also of the creative opportunities mm. that, that the media and internet provide. But do you think it was simply the media? Because, I mean, so Alfred Crosby famously said that Americans aren't very good at remembering or taking note of things they don't think are important. And that's why he thought he couldn't find more examples of art or or, or songs or poetry, you know, dedicated to the Spanish flu. At the time of the Spanish flu, I think that um, Americans were perhaps considering the, the First World War as far more important and and I would say more formative for national self-image, if you like, particularly the, the way that they approach the military and, and particularly veterans. Another question I get asked a lot is, why was the Spanish flu forgotten? Or maybe you don't think it was forgotten because your thesis is that in some respects it wasn't. And the second question I get a lot is, will, will we all forget COVID once it's over? Will we all want to forget it? Maybe is a better way of putting it. Yes, I absolutely would argue that the Spanish flu has become remembered as forgotten in, in this rather paradoxical way and uh, yes in in arts and culture it was it was notably um, more absent but i think that in the public 
Kelferinas and that sort of thing, it, it certainly made its mark. I think that this pandemic is going to have wrought such a an immense change in, in the lives of so many people around the world that this can't be an event that's forgotten, both in sort of, you know, it won't be forgotten. It's, it's going to have it's going to be that common experience that people from around the world are going to have had and will be able to talk about. But also we've still got so many lessons to learn. Um, the UK, you know, at the time of the centenary, we know that, you know, there were pandemic plans. Uh, it ranked second a year ago, I think, in pandemic preparedness in the world. So we've clearly got a lot to learn. We think we're prepared. We think we have the answers. And then something like COVID-19 turns up and we realise just how vulnerable we still are. Yeah, I mean, I'd certainly agree with that. I mean, if this pandemic has brought home one thing, it's the the danger of hubris and being complacent that we have all the answers. And also this sense that we're not China, we're somehow exceptional. You know, it's not going to be like that here. But why wouldn't it? We're all the same under under the skin. You have obviously made a, a study of, of pandemics of, of various sizes mm. and, and yeah. seriousness over, over many years. And I'm really interested to hear how COVID-19 has made you think differently about pandemics. Of course, there are similarities between pandemics and similarities between COVID and Spanish flu. But there are probably as many differences as similarities. And it really brought, it's brought home to me how no two pandemics are ever quite alike. History rhymes, but it never repeats exactly the same way. And I think that, you know, COVID has shown us that. Because as historians, we can only ever engage with the past through our present assumptions. So we try as far as possible to put those aside and try and think ourselves into the minds of people in the past. But we can never do that 100% successfully. Uh, And what I find interesting is the way that this pandemic raises new questions or different questions about what happened not only in 1918, but what happened during the Black Death or with HIV AIDS. And one of those questions is, did people have the sort of reactions they're having today? Everyone's expecting there to be a major depression after COVID. And people ask, well, what happened in 1918? And so I went back and looked, and there's very little scholarship on the economic impacts. And it seems that there's mixed evidence that essentially there may have been a slight uh, drop in GDP, but the economy by 1920 rapidly returned to its steady state. It didn't seem to have the dramatic impacts you would think it would have. And I think a big reason for that was obviously occurred during World War I. But also, the economy, we couldn't stop economies precisely because we were at war. People couldn't socially distance. Women still had to go to munitions factories uh, and the men still had to go to war. So the economy kept kept turning. So there wasn't this massive economic hit in the way that we have now. And the other major difference, of course, is we didn't have these long global supply chains. The world wasn't as interconnected. We didn't have global a global economy. We We still had you know, by and large, we had to source our own food at that point locally. So one of the things that I think or hope actually will come out of this is that we will start to realise the value of being able to do things locally, not just in terms of food production, but not being reliant on these long supply chains. And, And politically, and this is so important, we need to both be able to think globally about about global issues such as the health of the whole planet, But at the same time, we have to give people 
the ability to make a difference in their own lives by empowering communities and devolving power from the centre to the periphery. That's really interesting and kind of kind of reflecting on that, I think on, on a more global scale, I think it'll be interesting to see how in recent years we've seen the re-emergence of some more nationalist, isolationist kind of narratives in, in uh, politics. I will be interested to see how a global pandemic affects how we consider ourselves as a global population rather than you know just a series of national ones margaret chan who said the virus writes the rules viruses don't respect borders they don't respect flags uh, and i really do hope that we remember that we're all very much interdependent interconnected so we have to start thinking about public health as global health so there you have it viruses like sars and the spanish flu can divide nations but they can also bring communities closer together As one of my personal medical heroes, the Rockefeller researcher René Dubois once put it, think globally, act locally. Thank you for listening to Going Viral, The COVID Files. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our series and recommend Going Viral to your friends. We'd also like to hear your views and we'd love for you to rate us too. Follow us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod or on Instagram at goingviral underscore the podcast. Our producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. And this has been The COVID Files.